0: one of the things that I can say with confident certainty, if that's the right way to say it, is that most of us, perhaps all of us, deal with anxiety about the future. Whether that's related to financial concerns. I was having lunch with a friend of mine last week who's not a believer, not a, not a follower of Jesus and he confided in me that that's something that he really struggles with. But that could have been anybody, really. It's a, it's a concern of not having enough in the future or right now, or it's physical concerns, anxiety over our health, not certain of what will come, or relational concerns, or vocational, life direction concerns. Whatever it might be, any uh, aspect of our lives that we think about in terms of the future can tend to bring us a sense of of unrest and anxiety and struggle. Um, Both now, that's true for us now, and it's also true, very much so true, for those who lived long ago. It's not anything that's new. There's nothing new under the sun. Two weeks ago, we started a series looking at the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Western Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. And it's very, very probable, almost certain, that those to whom he wrote perhaps even more so struggled with anxiety about the future than we do. Because they were living in a culture, and a context where things weren't as guaranteed, certainly as what most of us experience here in the U.S. And they didn't have those kinds of promises or good medical care or grocery stores or refrigerators and so on. What we're looking at tonight in this Letter addresses these questions about the future head on remember that Paul is explaining for us in this entire epistle the brave new world the world of God's making in the Messiah that is coming to be now through the power of God the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the spirit And he's currently in this opening long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14, erupting in praise for all that God has done in the world. All that he's doing in us or in the recipients of this letter. Those who found themselves believing, trusting, hoping in the Messiah. And so he's erupting in praise. He can't contain himself for the way that the lives of his hearers and of himself have been woven into this brave new world that God is creating in Jesus. And he does this, I mentioned this last week, he does this through the retelling of the Exodus story. Paul does this elsewhere. He does it in Galatians 3 and 4. He does it strongly in Romans 5 through 8. And he's doing it again here in a much more compact form. But retelling the story, the the, the Exodus story is the great story of the people of God's redemption and salvation. And so when the greater redemption comes, it's it's quite obvious. a normal thing for Paul to start to see this through the lens of the Exodus. So he, he tells them about being chosen and adopted. We looked at that last week. That complex and sometimes, well, always difficult to understand reality that we looked at. I won't rehash that tonight. But we looked at that. They, uh, they were chosen and adopted. Back into the Exodus story. Exodus 4.22. Israel, my son. I've made a covenant. I've remembered my covenant. I remembered my choice of these people. And so I heard their cries at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. Then he moved on to being redeemed and liberated. And Paul uses a phrase here that evokes the Exodus explicitly. He says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, uh, bringing about residences of the Passover and the Passover lamb that was shed, the blood that was shed so that it could be spread across the doorposts. And as the angel of death came through Egypt and killed the firstborn son, The people who had the blood on the doorpost were spared. And so he says not only have you been chosen and adopted as as children of God. But you've been redeemed and forgiven. And tonight we get to the third part of the Exodus story. They, They came out of Israel through the Red Sea. And went into the wilderness. To pursue their promised inheritance. The land of Canaan. And they were granted on this path. And in this pursuit. God's holy and dangerous presence in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Verses 11 through 14 retell this part of the Exodus narrative for us and address our fears in many ways about the future that can oftentimes be paralyzing both back then and today. And here's the great and simple declaration of this section, verse 11. It is that you and I, that we have An inheritance. An inheritance. Now we get the idea of inheritance. We understand that. It's connected to family identity. Generally we think of it as something that, you know, if our grandparents have made or produced or stored up something, or our parents have made or produced or stored up something, that one day we're going to get that something. Maybe sometimes a lot of it before they pass away, perhaps certainly as they do pass away, those things will be passed on to us as our inheritance. We get that concept of an inheritance. And so Paul is saying, you know, you're the adopted children of the, of, of the Father, in the Messiah, in Jesus. You've been adopted. You're a child of God. And so now you have access to, you've been promised, what God is making or producing, what belongs to your Father, is now your inheritance. So the question is, well, what's that? What is our inheritance as children of God? What is it? And Paul gives a hint in the verses right before this that we looked at briefly last week when he says that God has revealed his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is this cosmic vision of a new world, the brave new world united in Jesus with alienation, brokenness, sin, evil, death, expunged, uh, uh, pushed out, squeezed out of this new creation. So that all things, whether things in heaven or things in earth, these two realms of reality would be brought together under one head, that is Jesus, and made into a new and beautiful world. We get glimpses into this beautiful world in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, when this one from the stump of Jesse arises and brings a day when the the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The child will play with the snake. And the knowledge and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Or later, Isaiah 65, a reading we did a couple of weeks ago about the new creation, the new world that God is making. And Paul's claim is that this new world has now come about. It's been brought into being through the resurrection of the Messiah. And that now those of us who are in the Messiah get to inherit, Not we sometimes think about our inheritance as, as heaven, where we, we have a hard time understanding that, really. We think of it as a disembodied, spiritual, ethereal, bliss state with all kinds of caricatures. And it's hard for us to really get our, sink our teeth into that and really look forward to something like that. But when we think about our inheritance, not as some kind of ethereal place, but as... A very uh, embodied and, and material new creation. It takes on a whole new light and a whole new meaning. Because we can understand and we get glimpses in this world of the joys and the blessings and the benefits of the goodness of God's creation. Our inheritance is the new world that God is making. The world that God made originally, he put human beings in charge. He made them male and female and Adam and Eve were set over the garden to rule and to reign over God's good created order. To nurture it, to bring out its latent potential, to see it develop into human civilization and and to bring in a sense as an infant up to adulthood the created order. But we messed it up. And yet God chose to remain faithful. And as God remakes the world, he places a human being back at the top. That being Jesus, the truly human one, the Messiah. To reign, as he says later in verse 22, and, he, and, he's, and he's referencing Psalm 8. Which is about this idea of human beings ruling over the created order. He says he put all things under his feet. And gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church. The old creation got mucked up. Human beings instead of ruling over creation by God's design and grace. Became subject to that creation. And ended up going from dust you have come to dust you will return. And now as the new created order is being born again. Being birthed. A human being once again ascends to the height of creation. Is head over all things. And you and I, and this is the bizarre and crazy thing, is that you and I, being found in this Messiah, will share in that reign over the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says it like this in Romans 5 in a surprising verse. He says, Um, death reigned through the one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? We don't really expect him to say that. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We've been placed back in this proper role to reign over creation. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. My dad was an airline pilot growing up. He flew for TWA for 35 years and retired just before they were bought by American. Um, there were times, and I'm sure many of you have had experiences like this, when I would get to go on a trip with my dad and go fly with him. Now, when you're a regular paying customer on an airline, you get one little seat on the airplane, and you get to go in and kind of make it your own. It's usually not that big. you kind of crammed in, and you have to figure out how to make that your space. And you kind of keep everything contained. But when your dad is the pilot of the airplane, you get to kind of run around and hang out in first class and hang out with the the flight attendants preparing the the, the meal. And before you take off and after you land, run in and, and jump in the cockpit in the seat. And in a sense, that's the idea here. What we get so worked up about in our lives in terms of anxiety over the future, can I get what I need? We're kind of trying to buy one seat on the plane. When what God is saying to us in the Messiah, in Jesus, is that you've been invited in because of your father and his privileges to the whole of creation. It belongs to you. That's your inheritance. And so just to think for a moment about the way that we get torn up over the things, our financial life, our relational life, Uh, our, our physical life, and all of these other things that start to tear us up. What Paul is doing in this text, and it's no different for the people who received this letter when it was originally written, what Paul is seeking to do, he's trying to lift their eyes up. And he's trying to say that, look, whatever concerns that you have about tomorrow, and you've got a lot, or whatever concerns you have about next year, and they're significant. I want you to see that your life coheres and makes sense in this broad and big and brave and bold story of God remaking all things in the Messiah. And you are an heir of this new world with him. Now I'm not suggesting that that means that you have to be anxiety free about those things. Scripture teaches us about what to do. It says in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Jesus talks about anxiety in Matthew 6 and says, "Look, God feeds the birds of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. Will He not much more clothe you? We're called to lay these things before him, and it's part of the human experience to be drawn back down into that place of fear and anxiety over what it is that might be going on in our life. But what Paul is doing here is here is he's, he's kind of blowing it up, saying, "You've got an inheritance." But it's challenging, and this is where we'll go to the second and final point of this. Because we haven't received the inheritance yet. At least, not really. There are times when Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, can actually speak as if that inheritance, our owning the world, is already a reality. So he says something like this, and it's always confusing to us when we read it. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ." And Christ is of God. So in some sense, even though it's not really here, it's already kind of here that Paul can even slip into that kind of thinking. When the Corinthians are fighting over whose is whose and whose is what, what peace do I get, what peace do you get in terms of teachers? Paul says, no, no, no. All things are yours. But the reality is we know, we, we don't experience the fullness of this inheritance right now. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have needed to write this letter. There wouldn't be a need to kind of expand our minds to see the brave new world. We're actually, to go back to the Exodus story, right now we're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place of trial. And it's a place of testing. And it's a place of temptation. And it's a place of refining. That's where we find ourselves. And so like in Romans 8, when Paul's retelling the story there, he talks about the groanings too deep for words that come out of a people who know the fullness, who've tasted the fullness, but who experience in the day-to-day a diminished reality. The aches and the pains of a creation that's still in some ways waiting for the redemption that will come. And that begs the question then that Paul deals with in verse 14. So how can we be assured that this glorious inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth will actually become ours? In Exodus 13, our reading tonight, we read there for the first time where it's revealed that God chooses to bring, redeem his people, and then to go and accompany them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The New Testament equivalent of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is the Holy Spirit that God has poured out upon his people. The holy and dangerous Think to Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira for just a moment. The holy and dangerous presence of God in the midst of his people. Who is there to do three things, at least in terms of this text. To seal us, verse 13. When you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that that, that word for sealing means the kind of branding that would be put on livestock or slaves in the first century to identify uh, the the ownership over them, to identify that they belong to someone else and that by virtue of belonging to that someone else, that they share the, 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 the resources of that household and the protection of that household over them. You've been sealed as a son or as a daughter by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. By the spirit, you've been made a child and therefore an heir. Same in Romans 8. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. By the Spirit that has sealed us. Chapter 4, verse 30, Paul comes back to this and says, it's the Spirit in whom you were sealed for the redemption. The Spirit seals. The Spirit leads, directs, and guides. Like the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They knew where to go when when the, the cloud would move and the fire would move. And they would follow the presence of God. And in the same way now, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads, guides, and directs His people. So that in Romans 8, where this is told in a greater way, we're told to walk by the Spirit to walk by the leading and direction of the spirit and not according to the flesh it's still possible for us to walk according to the flesh the israelites did it coming out of egypt by chapter 13 and this great deliverance in chapter 14 and chapter 15 then you get to chapter 16 and they're complaining that they didn't get the food that they wanted in the wilderness can't we just go back and enjoy the meat pots that we ate in egypt can't we just go back to slavery And every time that we're tempted to return, to just grab on to the inheritances that this world has to offer and to hold on to those for our security and our significance and everything else that we long for in life, we're tempted like Israel was to go back to the meat pots, the places of comfort that are more tangible, the trophies of the world. The Spirit leads us and guides us and directs us. And the Spirit is also not just the one who seals, not just the one who leads, but also is himself a part of the future inheritance brought forward to now. Because the Spirit is God's presence. And this is so radical. But we as Christians believe that God himself dwells in us. The Spirit dwells in us. The presence of God dwells in us and so that future new heavens and new earth where we're told that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea where we're told in Revelation 21 and 22 that the glory of God will be its light because God will now dwell with humankind the presence of God which will flood creation has already flooded your heart your life this little part of creation which is your body And is now expanding through you throughout the world until the day when God's presence covers the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit is referred to with this great word, the Erebon, the guarantee, the the down payment. This is a legal and commercial word in, in terms of legal and commercial transactions. This is a down payment that you put on a house that you buy. This is what... God does. He puts the spirit in us and says, I'm claiming you for my own. I'm sealing you. I'm leading you. I'm giving you my presence. And now that I've done that, this is the guarantee that you will one day inherit the world which is filled with my presence in the way that I've already filled you now. And all of this that Paul is erupting over is for the praise of of his glory. Verse 12 and verse 14 both say this phrase to the praise of his glory. All that Paul has said up to this point, you've been adopted, you've been brought out, you've been redeemed, you've been liberated, you've been cleansed, you've been given and granted a future that is so much greater than any inheritance that you could ever get from your parents or your grandparents or your own hard work. All of this. This brave new world is for the praise of his glory. I want to finish with this thought. started just saying we're anxious. And my heart tonight is is really to lift our eyes up as Paul seeks to lift the eyes of his hearers up. But I, I want to put this thought to you, which is that when we are riddled by anxiety... when we are unable to rest in this inheritance, the whole point of this gracious, lavish love of God, which is to the praise of his glory, gets diminished. It gets a little bit squelched. Because instead of being able to be a radiant presence in the world as we trust in our Heavenly Father... we we start to kind of get all tied up in knots. And you know what this is like. You know what, I know what, we all know what this is like. And the radiance of his glory to the praise of his glory becomes diminished instead of a full orchestra. It's just a, a solo violin here and there. But when we know this guarantee, and if you're sitting here saying, how do I know the Spirit's in me? Here's how you know the Spirit's in you do you believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, nobody can say that apart from the Spirit of God. This guarantee that's been set upon you says with beyond the shadow of a doubt that this inheritance is yours, which says that you can now Yes, right now, that you can lay those anxieties about the future down and live a reckless life of love. Paul will exhort us in chapter 5, we'll get there sometime, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You'll be free to live a reckless life of love as one who's been adopted and redeemed and grant it a future that's far bigger and better than you can imagine. All to the praise of his glory. Amen.